Gibson suddenly decided he had enough money to put in and that word ambition came into it and the appointment of Robson was just seminal in all of this. Absolutely anything was possible. Everything was just buzzing and then he added to that uh, a spell of football where it was just beyond comprehension. We just crashed for, for, for several months where we couldn't win a game. We were brilliant going forward, but we defensively looked pretty shambolic. It was the way he entered into the spirit of the team. Yeah, I, I, I still dream of, of him in motion, the way his legs moved. Hindsight's brilliant, isn't it? But if we'd have turned up at that game and got beat, we'd have still stayed up. There is no last day miracle for Middlesbrough. Throughout the Premier League era, many football clubs have faced the dreaded prospect of falling through the relegation trapdoor. Some won their battle, some didn't. These are the stories of chaos, calamity and catastrophe. This is The Drop, a podcast by The Set Pieces, hosted by me, Mark Godfrey. Middlesbrough, Teesside. Medium-sized northern town, former industrial powerhouse, hotbed of football. So many great players, managers and characters have passed through the borough and left their mark. From Campsell to Clough and Mannion to Mowbray. Yet for 120 years, the club was almost an anomaly compared to others of a similar profile with neither major silverware nor even a cup final appearance to speak of. The long-suffering supporters came to expect little, so weren't disappointed when the team barely achieved that. But in the summer of 1996, something began to stir amongst them. An unusual but welcome sensation. Optimism. Ten years earlier, most Borough fans' only hope was the club's continued existence. With mounting debts and spiralling fortunes, the summer of 1986 saw the liquidators called in. Staff were laid off and the gates to Middlesbrough's home, Ayrson Park, were padlocked. To say things were grim would be an understatement of epic proportions. The club's position remains desperate. He alone is owed more than half a million pounds and it's thought other creditors, like the Inland Revenue, may still try to have the winding up order served in court tomorrow. Middlesbrough Council has now withdrawn financial support and the situation appears to be getting worse by the minute. This morning the club looked as though it was finished, wound up and the latest rescue package rejected by the league. But this afternoon the consortium trying to save football in the town announced that their latest deal had been accepted and that the borough will play their opening match with Port Vale next week. If you'd asked me last night, I would have said the chances of Middlesbrough surviving were almost nil. And that was the real situation. Lost 
local businessman Steve Gibson was young, ambitious and perhaps most importantly a lifelong borough fan. A self-made man in the haulage industry, a Labour councillor at 21 and board member at Middlesbrough FC at just 26, he had the necessary passion, energy and endeavour to rescue the club from what seemed inevitable extinction. With just 10 minutes to spare, he and a consortium of backers were able to ensure the town still had a football league club bearing its name, even if it was in the old third division. The revived Middlesbrough was built on a foundation of canny signings and young local talent, such as Gary Pallister and Stuart Ripley, who both went on to bigger things in their career, whilst also recouping healthy transfer fees when they moved on. There were promotions in the years after escaping bankruptcy, only for relegations to swiftly follow. But they were, at least, present in the first season of the Premier League. Borough captain Alan Kernigan can be found smiling proudly front and centre in that famous team photo that helped launch the English top flight rebrand in 1992. With that fleeting taste of the Premier League and Sky TV money, and the new possibilities to upset the established order, Steve Gibson took over as chairman from previous incumbent and fellow club saviour Colin Henderson after much internal wrangling. With the examples of local boys done good revitalising football clubs at Blackburn Rovers and Newcastle United, Gibson set about his project to do the same at Middlesbrough. Achieving his goals required difficult decisions both on and off the pitch. It would mean a big name manager, a brand new stadium and everyone buying into his vision. First came Manchester United and England legend Brian Robson in the dugout and then the 30,000 all-seater Riverside Stadium. Robson's appointment was made all the smoother by the acquiescence of predecessor Lenny Lawrence as author and podcaster Daniel Gray explains. He met with Brian Robson in the little chef on the A19 to persuade him to come to Middlesbrough. Robbo was still uh, club captain at Man United. Steve Bruce was team captain. And, and he had the pick of jobs. I know he was offered the Wolves job as well. I remember reading that. And he could have gone to he could have played on at various clubs, dropped down some divisions. And the potential was the real word. Rob, Robson, when you look back now, the old clips and his interviews when he was appointed, it was all about the stadium for him and the money that he was going to be given for transfers. Gibson suddenly decided he had enough money to put in serious money to buy the stadium and that word ambition came into it and that's that's in all the interviews of the time, the ambition to move to the stadium and get up there and the appointment of Robson was just seminal in all of this. Robson's profile throughout the world of football would certainly help attract better players to Teesside, but managers come and go. The supporters' strongest attachment is to the stadium. If Middlesbrough were to become upwardly mobile and serious challenges for honours, it was obvious that they would have to say goodbye to Ayrson Park, their home for 92 years. 
I remember the, the club inviting me to Essen Park and they, they showed me the, uh, the structural problems. Um, we looked at the, the, the old main stand was, was from 1903 and um, the chief executive at the time, Keith Lamb, took me round and said, have a look at this. There was a, a bit of exposed girder and it was just completely corroded away. And he was saying, how do we replace this? Rob Nichols is the editor of the long-running Borough fanzine Fly Me to the Moon. He recalls the need to relocate to a shiny new ground, initially meeting with a mixed response from the fans. You definitely did have many fans wanting to stay at Ayrson Park and I didn't want to move. But it was that last season was very emotional and leading up to a last match. But there was a building expectation. We're quite a pessimistic lot in, in, in their Teesside. And up until the actual up until the actual opening of the gates uh, for the first game against Chelsea, an awful lot of people did not believe it was going to happen. But people were quick to sort of embrace it. Local lad Andy Campbell was a striker coming through the youth ranks just as Middlesbrough's rapid ascent began. He too was conflicted about the move from Ayrson to the Riverside and what the new financial investment meant for his first team prospects. I grew up as a Middlesbrough fan. Um, I watched him at Ayrson Park, obviously heard about the heartache, obviously going to play at Hartlepool and, um, and the gates being closed at Ayrson Park and, and things and then far cry from the new stadium being built in the Riverside. And it, it, it created its own problems moving to the new stadium and, 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 and moving into a new um a new setting, you know, because I knew that they were looking at the Ann Fjordoffs, uh, the Nick Barnbys, the Craig Hignitz, and then and it went to another level. And it was, as a fan, it was fantastic. As a as a young player, it was fantastic to learn, but it was great on one hand, but then disappointing in another. I didn't get to play as many games, and when I did play, oh, listen, I loved every minute of it. I was uh, I was like a super fan. It was, it, I know it's cliche, you know, what I mean, everybody's dream, but those dreams don't happen to people. The Robson effect was immediate. They won the first division title and promotion to the promised land in his first season in charge. It was a fitting farewell to Ayrson Park. Before moving into their new home and the Premier League, there was more money to be spent and Gibson was not there just to make up the numbers. Middlesbrough pulled off a coup by signing Tottenham and England starlet Nick Barmby for over £5 million a princely fee in those days, and then they cast their net much further afield to secure more exciting talent. Juninho had just broken into the Brazilian national side and was one of its hottest young footballers. He had impressed for his club, Sao Paulo, and first came to the attention of English audiences during the Umbro Cup, a mini-tournament held in England in the summer of 1995 as a warm-up event for the Euros a year later. A host of big European clubs coveted the diminutive playmaker, so it was a shock when he agreed to join ambitious but still unfashionable Middlesbrough in October 95. Those days, and even even now, I think um, a player of that 
their obvious ability coming to a team who'd only just been promoted back to the Premier League um, you know, the previous summer uh, was quite a surprise. Um, but I think Brian Robson was one of those names, still is one of those names that um, everyone around the world knows uh, from his success at club and country. David Broom, author of The Little Fella, How Middlesbrough Fell in Love with Juninho, recalls the Brazilian's ambition, but also his initial difficulties settling into life in the northeast of England. Juninho imagined himself having a similar role to uh, Maradona at Napoli. He thought, you know, I can come to this club, who aren't necessarily one of the bigger clubs in England, and I can, I can be the, the, the star man and I can take them to glory. But also, he knew it would help his career as well. I think it was a big shock for Juninho at first. Just simple things like the weather, you know, he never had been used to that cold. He comes straight from um, Brazil. Uh, I mean, uh, Juninho used to play with newspaper inside his shoes and extra layers when he was training and things like that. Um, he'd never seen snow until he came to Middlesbrough. Aside from those things, he he, he loved the fact that, that the fan, how the fans uh, reacted to him. Um, he lived um, in a little village outside Middlesbrough, in Gubby Barwick. And he was hugely popular there. He used to have kickabouts with um, like the children who lived around there. He'd invite his neighbours around for barbecues and things like that. The people of Middlesbrough adored their Samba star and packed the new stadium out every week. Their place in the Premier League was consolidated in that first season. But Steve Gibson and Brian Robson were determined that 96-97 would be the campaign when they broke through the glass ceiling. For those observing the club during the transition from first division football at Ayrson Park to the top flight at the Riverside, it had already been quite a journey for the town. As Anthony Vickers, long-time borough reporter for local paper The Gazette, explains. For a couple of years there, absolutely anything was possible. The, the promotion, the new ground, uh, a massive resurgence, a, a, lot of, a lot of things fell into place because obviously there was the 1996, Euro 1996 feel-good factor. Football was suddenly very trendy. Uh, Teesside was on the up. Employment was rising after a pretty, pretty bleak decade and everything was just buzzing. And then he added to that, uh, a spell of football where it was just beyond comprehension. For the people who had gone through the liquid liquidation crisis, they could never dream of something like this. For a short period, it was like it was like dream time. Anything was possible. The, the horizons were stretched beyond all credibility. And for a lot of older fans, especially people who had layered down an armour of cynicism over the decades, found it really quite hard to deal with emotionally because suddenly it looked like Borough might do it. They might break through. They might be on the top table. There was a prospect of winning things. And that really was quite hard to compute for a lot of people. Uh, the newer audience, uh, especially the young kids, which you know, we didn't have many young kids and families at Ayrson Park, at the Riverside, suddenly it was uh, gleaming fresh-faced family groups and the foam fingers and, and scarves and... And they weren't as cynical and they bought into it absolutely immediately and totally succumbed to the whole uh, Riverside Revolution and, and Janinho. The players already at the club 
were under no illusion that the chairman and manager meant business, having witnessed firsthand the rapid shift in expectations, as Middlesbrough midfielders Craig Hignett and Robbie Musto recall. So when we went to what was called the Selnet Riverside Stadium then, that club that went there was totally unrecognisable from the club that I joined. When we moved to the stadium, we suddenly had a brand new training ground, a brand new ground, and then obviously with the players that he signed. The biggest wow moment is when Brian Robson walked in the door of a room, a business, you know, like a meeting room at Essen Park. I remember it now. He walks in, I think, with our owner, Steve Gibson, who'd just taken control of the club. And that was kind of a wow moment. And it's like, wow, things, things are going to change here. And that, that kind of transition really was the beginning of the signings. If the transfers of Juninho, Barmby and World Cup winner Branco were unexpected, the summer of 1996 had a couple more surprises in store. First, there was another Brazilian, Emerson, a powerhouse midfielder with a sublime touch and range of passing signed from Bobby Robson's Porto. But the headlines were stolen by who came through the door next. Attenzione, c'è un po' di imprecisione, Ravanelli, Ravanelli, attenzione, attenzione, gol, gol! Gol! Sfruttando un errore di Feindepur, Ravanelli porta in vantaggio la Juventus quando siamo al dodicesimo minuto. Gol di Fabrizio Ravanelli, Juventus 1, Ajax 0. Fabrizio Ravanelli was an integral part of Juventus' stellar forward line and was familiar to anyone in Britain that watched Football Italia on Channel 4. He was fresh from scoring in the Champions League final win over Ajax and appearing at Euro 96 for Italy. And while Juve were never frightened to cash in on their star players, you would have to have been Mystic Meg to have predicted the white-haired striker showing up on Teesside. This felt like the moment that Middlesbrough arrived. That, the Rabinelli signing was just, it just didn't seem believable. It did kind of create this idea that we, like, we could sign whoever we wanted. I mean, the, 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 the paper was just full of rumours. I mean, people like Klinsman and Bart Stuter were linked. And I think Bialy was linked as well with uh, Middlesbrough that summer. Um, and with Emerson, he was, like I say, he wasn't that well known, but he, I, I guess, the people in the know knew that he was uh, really talented. He, he just won Portuguese Player of the Year, um, and Bobby Robson was his man. He was his manager at Porto, and he absolutely loved him. But Bobby Robson became manager of Barcelona later that summer. I think if Emerson had not been so hasty, Bobby Robson would definitely have signed him for Barcelona, and I reckon he would have probably, if he'd made that decision, he probably would have gone on to be one of the best midfielders in the in the world. Tom Flight, author of "You're Joking, Aren't You?" the story of Borough's '96 '97 season remembers a sense of absolutely anything being possible ahead of the opening game against Liverpool at the Riverside. That Ravinelli debut, that was just, I'd never known like a more electric atmosphere than that at the Riverside. I mean, it was just absolutely, it was just, it was just euphoric. I mean, everybody wanted, everybody came to see him. It was, I remember it being like a, like a baking hot August afternoon. And yeah, like, like I said, no one really knew like what this team was capable of. We, we'd sign these superstars, you know, were we, you know, were we good enough to, to challenge for the title? to be placed on the penalty spot by Fabrizio Ravanelli. This to open his account in English football. Middlesbrough trying to keep the pressure on. It's a pressure cooker atmosphere. Here's Cox. 
into the six-yard box, Ravanelli. Here's Musto trying to burst through Ravanelli. Ravanelli, yes! It's a hat trick. It's 3-3. The white feather signals his arrival on Teesside. Ravanelli had taken just 90 minutes to pay off a large chunk of his £7 million transfer fee and there would be plenty more goals and talking points to come from him. The match was played like a cup tie, in a crackling cup tie atmosphere, with Borough coming back three times to earn a draw against a Liverpool side that only missed out on second place on goal difference. It was a performance that made everyone sit up and take notice. However, the way they attacked with abandon and defended with uncertainty came to epitomise the entire 96-97 season. The warning signs were most definitely there. Still, three wins on the bounce in early September, with three goals apiece for Ravanelli and Janino, saw Middlesbrough climb to fourth after victory at Everton. Gibson and Robson's dream to gatecrash the party suddenly seemed like a distinct possibility. But they were heading for choppy waters. Goals began to dry up, the defence sprung leaks and the league season quickly unravelled throughout the autumn. The unsettled Nick Barnby left for Everton, Emerson vanished and results mirrored the obvious fracturing of the dressing room harmony. Our guests tried to put their fingers on where things began to go wrong. If you look at the lineups in those those first sort of twenty games of the season, we, we have a different back five, back four every week. I mean, there was not absolutely no stability, and I think that really paid a price. And also, in the midfield, I mean, like I said, Emerson was was a, was a brilliant player, but he he I think he really suffered from not having that kind of structure. Um, I think we, we were basically overrunning midfield constantly. I mean, Emerson wasn't the most disciplined player. Um, if you go back and watch some of those games, he's, he's, he's often caught napping in midfield. And you've got Robbie Musto running around like a headless chicken trying to keep things, keep things um, you know, stable in the midfield. So I think the, I think the team was just a, was a bit of a mess. Um, and as the, as the results declined, I think Ravanelli and Janino, I think their kind of morale dipped and their form suffered as well. We've just crashed. For, for, for several months where we couldn't win a game. With hindsight, you look back at the first game and say, well, the, well, the lessons were there to be seen, that we were we were brilliant going forward, but we conceded three goals and and, and defensively looked pretty shambolic. And the injury to Nigel Pearson, the captain, was was really key. And we took we took far too long to replace him. We chased after Nadal from Spain um, for uh, um, far too long. We should have brought somebody else in. And at the time we were saying we were questioning our problems with the defense and then we got the situation with Emerson and, and all the controversy going around him and for us initially Emerson was the man uh, not not Juninho Juninho emerges later but Emerson uh, we thought was like Graham Souness reborn who was who was like for many that the all-time greatest player and obviously went on to achieve so much but he 
he just looked like a colossus, Emerson. And we we kind of like we let ourselves go completely derailed by the the Emerson situation. Where is he? Where, where why isn't he? And, and and fans were absolutely distraught by this, and and the club appeared to be as well. Emerson and his decision, or as it was said at the time, his partner's decision for him to leave Teesside and go missing, as the tabloids put it, and his his, his partner called Teesside a, a, a dark and terrible place, was the moment really when this turned, when I think back properly. But that was a really pivotal moment in the, in the autumn. Emerson going missing, AWOL, I never knew that phrase until that time. That was so important when you're analysing that season because up until then, yeah, he drifted in and out towards the, the, the just before he went missing. But that's when that was the, the real sign that all wasn't that well. The chemistry in the dressing room wasn't quite right. There was there was little clicks. So Ravinelli and, and Gianluca Festa, um, both Italians who, who were at the club at the time, they were very, very close. Obviously, Emerson Giannino mixed with the other lads, but, but were very, very close. Um, we had um, Fabio, who was Emerson's cousin as well, who was at the club as a player. Um, and then th- there was some preferential treatments with other people. And mostly Ravinelli, when he went away, would say things in the press that were quite derogatory towards Middlesbrough as an area and, and a football club. And one or two lads took exception to that in the dressing room. He always used to come back and say he was misquoted or this, that and the other. But I think after about the second or third time it had happened, it wasn't washing with people. So we give him the benefit of the doubt at first. But after that, some people just wouldn't accept it. And it just, obviously, when results don't go your way, little cracks start to appear and show. And, and results weren't going our way, certainly in the league. Whilst the cup games were coming and we were winning them, the league, we started to, to struggle a little bit. And then there was one or two other problems and it just slowly deteriorated. So it wasn't the greatest team spirit. But saying that, you know, on, on you don't have to have the greatest team spirit. You just have to work hard for each other when you play on a Saturday. And um, I think one or two people thought that they weren't getting their all off certain members of the squad. With the heavy Christmas schedule upon them, no league wins since September, and any hope of a challenge for European qualification in tatters, the build-up to what should have been a routine away game at Blackburn Rovers exposed the disarray at the club. A growing injury and illness crisis prompted a phone call to the Premier League that would have far-reaching consequences. There was a, there was a flu outbreak in the, in the club. We already had a major injury crisis. I do think the, the re, what kind of triggered the decision was that the week before, um, we had we we had a patched up squad against away at Liverpool, and we got absolutely destroyed. Robbie, Robbie Fowler scored four goals. We lost five one. We could easily have lost ten one. I mean, it, it was one of the worst performances ever. Um, so they called the the FA, um, or, the, or they they called the Premier League. Um, and there's all the there's stories about they couldn't really get hold of the people, the right people to make the decisions. Um, and I, I mean, I think that there's absolutely no doubt that. The Robson felt that he they had the right to call the game off. Uh, I think it's probably a case that he was he was hearing what he wanted to hear. He was probably he was probably getting mixed advice from the from the people he was talking to. But he he heard what he wanted to hear, and then he announced to the press that the game was off. And then the Premier League kind of called back and like, "What, what are you doing?" 
a lot of fans will admit that there was a lot of naivety from Robson and Gibson that they felt they could do that. I mean, it is kind of, I mean, it is kind of unthinkable these days. I was, I was one of the players who was selected. I'd, I, play, I trained on the Friday. I was ready to play. Big opportunity for me personally. Uh, on the bus, ready to go. We got told by the chief executive at the time, Keith um, Lamb, that we weren't going. Didn't have to go. Premier League gave us dispensation and we didn't have to go. And it was probably only a few weeks later that the real stories came out that, that we should have gone. We had to go. Uh, we were going to get points deducted in hindsight. You can go and then get big 10. No, you probably would have stayed up. I was, I was one of the, uh, the well ones. I mean, hindsight's brilliant, isn't it? But if we'd have turned up at that game and got beat, we'd have still stayed up. And we had a, a team training on the morning of that game or a squad training, the ones who weren't ill. And you could have played that squad and it, it wouldn't have embarrassed itself. I think there was, I think Janino and Emerson and Rav may have missed the game. So obviously your three big hitters. But then there was mass confusion about who phoned who and what assurances did they have off the FA and were they in the rights or had they been told to cancel it? So I think both parties were blaming each other for that, for miscommunication. And it didn't help us as players because we ended up suffering with the three points taken off us and the fans, of course. And that decision had, had not only cost the club that season, but the following season because the names that were touted as, as coming in if we'd have stayed up, we're, we're unbelievable. You know, literally anyone at that time could have walked through the door. You know, people, Romario was getting mentioned, Roberto Carlos was getting mentioned. You talk about defining moments in the season. That 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 was the first defining moment, really. I mean, there was great moments and, and Ravinelli's goals and our cup runs and some brilliant, uh, amazing cup performances. But But not turning up at Blackburn when, let's face it, we could have put a team out. We could have put a team out. There was virus going around and there was injuries. I think I was injured at that time. Um, but you can you could have put some youth players out there or something and lose 10-0 and stay in the division. So that that was a mistake that I will never... It goes down as a relegation, but it's not on me. It's not on, on any player because what we did on the field for that season would have been enough to stay in the league by one point. So that that hurts really because that's not, you know, it's a relegation for me. You know, but it's not because it was not our decision as players. I think a lot of us thought this is such a, an injustice that we'll turn it around. This is going to be the story because we're going to stick up these London bastards as the feeling was at the time. <laughs> um, there was that thing of this wouldn't have happened to any other any club from the South. You know, there's a real regionalism going on at that time. Three Points has all the drama. It's a fascinating story. The club could actually still do themselves a favour by telling us what happened because still really haven't <laughs> you hear all this stuff about the guy from the FA was on the golf course and all of this the fax machine was dodgy whatever we, we wouldn't mind the actual facts of it all I remember us plowing money into hi- hiring George Carmen QC as well and you become very uh, suddenly aware of the intricacies of the law and the appeal system and all of that it's really easy to look at Blackburn and say the three points sent Borough down and I'm a heretic on that I don't believe that's true I think without Blackburn, without the anger that that caused, I think Borough would have been tailed off by 10 points come come Easter. The anger around the three points completely galvanised the season. There was a a fire of righteous indignation that totally united everybody on Teesside. It it galvanised the squad. It, It united the fans with the team and with the board. I mean... In a lot of other occasions, 
that fire would have been turned on the board. I mean, how can you not turn up for a match? You know, that's a huge self-inflicted wound. But because of the way it, it was portrayed, on uh, the way it was felt on Teesside, everyone circled the wagons and there was an incredible siege mentality. And I personally think that that kick-started the season. And without that, without that indignation, I think that season was, was a write-off. And in fact, it turned out to be arguably the most successful, almost certainly the most memorable season in our history. Uh, and it was a season that everybody, it, it's a cultural touchstone on Teesside. Even people who weren't going to the matches were totally incandescent with rage that the establishment were trying to stop Middlesbrough uh, achieving something, achieving a dream at the moment, a possibility. The indignation at the docking of three points that Middlesbrough could ill afford to lose inspired a Boxing Day win over Everton at a packed and vociferous Riverside. But the league form immediately reverted to awful as December turned to January. If 1996 had been a roller coaster, 1997 was about to kick things up a notch. There was, at least, a welcome distraction in both the Coca-Cola League Cup and the FA Cup, with Borough looking like a different side entirely. Although the impending success in those competitions would prove to be a poison chalice. Ravinelli and Janino revelled in the Cups, with the latter's form really gaining momentum as Middlesbrough dispatched Liverpool, Chester City, Hensford Town and Manchester City. But for all the gathering cup fever on Teesside, a glance at the league table in early March made for terrifying reading. Brian Robson and Steve Gibson could never have envisaged being rooted to the foot of the table considering the talent at their disposal. They had a third of the season to save themselves, successfully appeal their punishment for the Blackburn debacle and make it to Wembley for a first major final. Cue Middlesbrough's momentous march. And Middlesbrough can start making their Wembley preparations. They can indeed now. And Brian Robson's side goes to Wembley the first time a Middlesbrough side has been in a major final. So the final score in this Coca-Cola Cup semi-final. Middlesbrough nil, Stockport County won on the night. But Middlesbrough victors by 2-1 on aggregate. They go through to face Leicester City at Wembley. Beck and Raven anyway to go! And Hulk didn't see where it came from. And it's Kindo who scores. Emerson. Beck has made the run down the left. Dark and a run from Ravenelli. He and Steve match together. Ravenelli! plays it, here's Ravinelli and Beck coming in from the other side should be four that is Ravinelli is onside 
score sheet, it would seem. Juninho again. Mustn't pass it. Well, he does to Ravanelli. But one stage looked offside, but now completes his hat-trick. Great play by Juninho. Great ball to the back. Juninho's inside for the return ball. Can Beck get it across. Juninho with it. Oh, what a goal! Absolutely magical! He started it. He helped it on his way. And he finished it. 52 minutes gone. It's Middlesbrough 1. Chelsea 0. Oh, that's going to go down as one of the goals of the season. And it came from Juninho. It's 13th of the season. But yeah, I think the things turned around in March. I mean, the, the two biggest things were we signed Mark Swartzer as a goalkeeper and we signed uh, Fester from Inter Milan. Um, and Nigel Pearson came back from injury. Um, and basically that just made the defence just uh, a lot stronger. And then we went on a run of four or five games in March where we won four in a row. And during during that time, you know, we, we, we won the semi-final against Stockport. So it was the first time we ever went to a major cup final. So that period, that March, April period was just, um, was just unbelievable. Yeah, there, there was definitely optimism and I don't think anyone believed that we were actually going to go down. That sudden upturn in fortune saw Middlesbrough not only reach their first ever major cup final and move to the brink of a second, but they also clambered their way out of the relegation zone. One of those crucial victories came courtesy of a Janino masterclass against future League Cup final opponents Leicester City. And while Fabrizio Ravanelli enjoyed one of his hot streaks in front of goal and the Borough backline suddenly looked more organised, it was the little fella's consistently brilliant performances that inspired teammates and supporters in equal measure. The entire team worked around him, basically. He, um, you know, he was playing... He was playing in the role he wanted, but he was dropping deep. He was tackling back. He was geeing everyone on. Um, he was get, trying to get the best out of the likes of Ravenelli and Emerson, who perhaps didn't have this, quite the same level of desire as he did. At the time, it was just the dream to be able to think he was in your team. And it wasn't just the wonderful drops of the shoulder, the nutmegs, the audacious skill. It was the commitment the work ethic seeing him tackled back and that was what I loved about him as much as anything else as much as the what you expected from a Brazilian player of the year it was the way he entered into the spirit of the team yeah I, I, I still dream of, of him in motion the way his legs moved the, the the movement of him we had never seen anyone like this the older fans you know thought back to Wilf Mannion and all of the rest we'll still talk about him when we're dead on the same day Brian Robson deservedly picked up his Manager of the Month award for March, the conclusion of the Blackburn saga produced a sting in the tail. The Board of Appeal has uh, considered all the submissions very carefully. It has dismissed the appeal of Middlesbrough on liability, taking the view that Middlesbrough was quite capable of fielding a team and that the club did not have just cause in cancelling the fixture. The board considers that a deduction of three points and a fine of £50,000 is right and fair. If March was magnificent, 
then April was agonising. Three league games, one point, no goals. Losing by the odd goal in two of them to plummet into the bottom three once more. There was the League Cup final at Wembley, the biggest day in the club's playing history. They comprehensively dealt with Leicester just a few weeks earlier in the league, but Fox's manager Martin O'Neill had learned a lesson and employed a man marker to nullify Janino. Extra time saw that man Ravanelli score what looked to be the winner until Emil Heskey equalised in the last minute to force a replay at Hillsborough. Typical Borough, as they say on Teesside. Then there was the FA Cup semi-final against third-tier Chesterfield. Easy, right? Wrong. Reduced to 10 men and on the favoured side of a decision not to award a goal to the underdogs when the ball appeared to cross the line whilst trailing 2-1, Robson's men eventually led with just a minute of extra time remaining. Jamie Hewitt equalised for Chesterfield to force a replay. Typical Borough, as they say on Teesside. Not only was April proving to be agonising for the fans, it was also placing a heavy burden on the players at the end of a long and difficult season. With cup replays and crucial relegation battles coming thick and fast, something, if not everything, would have to give sooner or later. The League Cup final replay also went to extra time, but Borough were left ruining their inability to finish the job off the first time as they lost out to a Steve Claridge goal. They comfortably beat Chesterfield to set themselves up for another bite at the cherry against Chelsea in the FA Cup final, another side they'd recently defeated in the Premier League. But the big question was, were bodies and minds beginning to run on empty? If April was agonising, then May was maddening. There were four league games remaining to rescue themselves, three away from home, including a trip to eventual champions Manchester United where very few teams came away with anything. Incredibly, opportunity knocked, but Middlesbrough weren't answering. Well, there's certainly some composure about this Middlesbrough side. They don't look like a team next to bottom of the table, do they? And Hignett's into a good position here, and so is Juninho, he's going to finish this one. Solskjaer, Cole, Andy Cole, and he's touched the side, and there is the Manchester United equaliser, driven in by Roy Keane. But I wonder if that's the end of Ravanelli's uh, league season, and of course they've got just as big a date coming up on May the 17th at Wembley against Chelsea in the cup final. Chimino's knocked the ball in here, Emerson's got a chance to restore the lead, and he does exactly that! And Manchester United have been caught cold. Musto powers forward, knocks it across, it's another one! 
It's 3-1, and Craig Hignett has scored for Middlesbrough. Andy Cole touches it in here for Cantona. Chance for Gary Neville. No! I don't believe this. It's his first ever goal. With Gary Neville. It's 3-3. It's unbelievable. It's Solskjaer. One important point should have been a season-saving three, but perhaps even more decisive was the loss of top scorer Ravanelli, who left the Old Trafford pitch on a stretcher. Middlesbrough's hopes of survival looked to have disappeared with him. The final day of the campaign came down to a four-way fight to avoid the drop, with Middlesbrough needing a win to send either Southampton Sunderland or Coventry City down in their place. They faced a Yorkshire derby of sorts at mid-table Leeds United against a typical George Graham side that conceded few and scored even fewer. Essentially, they were the antithesis of Robbo's have-a-go Borough boys. Without their Italian goal machine, the onus fell on Janino to pull the iron out of the fire. Two seasons ago, guided them to two cup finals this season. 
and made such ambitious signings from overseas. At the final whistle, Brian Robson consoled his visibly shell-shocked players on the Elland Road pitch. None appeared more devastated than Janino, whose tears were replicated amongst the supporters in the stands. Despite their colossal efforts during those final weeks of the season, with the mounting injuries and fixture pile-up, they had slipped to relegation, something that seemed unthinkable just nine months earlier, and that Blackburn debacle proved pivotal in their undoing. The Premier League have still to be forgiven by Middlesbrough fans. Before the inquest could really take place, there was an FA Cup final to prepare for, another massive occasion in the club's history. But it seemed that the wind had disappeared from everyone's sails. In that moment in Leeds, we were just so devastated. I remember going behind the stand and, and I saw the chief reporter, um, Eric Perler, and I, I remember saying to him, I was trying to like sort of rally and thing. I said, what, we, we've got to really now go for it in the cup final, haven't we, Eric? We've got to really go for it. We've got... We're relegated, but we've got to go out. We've got we've got to get something from this season. We've got to win our first ever FA Cup, which would be brilliant. And and Eric just, he was an old hand. He just shook his head and he said, uh, he says that they're just gone. They're just they're just not going to come back. It's just a it's a week. It's too it's too soon. I think yeah, we we all the expectations that we had of a Leicester game weren't there. I don't think anyone really thought we were going to win. Um, and and like no one really, no one had really had time to process how they felt about that season. You know, there was still some resentment, there was still some bitterness. All, all the players had kind of fallen out. And Robinelli and Neil Cox, they, they came to blows during the um, the photo shoot. I mean, um, they, the whole the whole morale had completely fallen apart. You know, we, there was a lot of press, and then I think the morning of the cup final, a story had come out from Ravi, one of the papers, saying he was leaving Middlesbrough. You know, he didn't want to play in the championship and. And he'd be off, and and it, like I said, there was a couple of lads who who had had it with him anyway, and then it boiled over a little bit. Cup final morning, there was a disagreement, a bit of handbags, and um, a bit of uh, an altercation took place. It wasn't massive, but it it was enough, you know. We we had we've been relegated the week before. Then you've got this going on. Then you've got a cup final an FA Cup final, one that you've dreamt about as a boy you want to play in, you've got all this shenanigans going on, so you can't really put it into words. It capped, it capped off that season, really. I mean, it, you know, it just, it just it almost made sense. Like, you know, we were so used to, we were getting so used to despair that it just felt right that the, the, the season should end with a, with a little FA Cup final loss. The, the chairman, uh, Steve Gibson, invited some of the fans to be part of the be part of the match day, the, the FA Cup final. Um that before the match and, and after the after the match we had like um special there was like special party and everything. Um and after the game we there was a plinth uh and with like a, one of these big ice sculptures and it was all set set up to have the FA Cup on top of it. <laughs> it was a centerpiece in the room. And you you were you were sitting there afterwards. You had your meal, um, and there was this plinth there with this empty plinth. It was it didn't melt because I scored, but it it would almost should have done. It should have like melted. And there was a an Irish comedian on, I think it was Frank Carson, and and that must have been the worst, the worst gig of his life. He has to try and tell jokes to people who've just to to a crowd that's just been relegated and lost the cup final. 
Middlesbrough's relegation in 96-97 put a temporary dent in Steve Gibson's dream of seeing his boyhood club compete with the elite of English football. The added double cup final heartbreak ensured there would be a permanent scar left on everyone that got carried along by the wave of mid-90s optimism on Teesside. Never before had they witnessed a campaign like it, and although Emerson, Ravanelli and Juninho all departed in the aftermath, more star signings were attracted by Gibson's enthusiasm, which helped Robson bring Borough back to the Premier League at the first attempt. And in subsequent years, after Robson's departure, Gibson finally realised his ambitions for Borough with a League Cup victory and an unlikely UEFA Cup final appearance. I'll give the last word on that bittersweet season to our guests. It was a, it was a great time to be a football fan and, and for Middlesbrough to be at the forefront, um, you know, in the headlines, I think it just um, it made it made it all that more kind of more that more kind of special. You know, we were sort of the new kids on the block, but we're having a real go and bringing in these these fantastic footballers and, and world-class players. So it's the wrong word, probably. We weren't a circus, but we were like, everyone wanted to come and see us because of who we had in, in our team and who was playing. And everyone wanted to play against us. It's exciting for people to watch. It's exciting to play in. It's absolutely the most memorable, the most heartbreaking, the most lifting, the most rock and roll of any season in the history of Middlesbrough Football Club, I think. If we could have that season again, apart from the bloody three points, maybe I wouldn't change anything. Maybe I wouldn't change anything. In fact, I wouldn't have. Why would I? Stay in the Premier League and get two cup finals? Of course. But what a season. Even though it ended in relegation, what a bloody season. So, so no, maybe I wouldn't change anything. That season, for all its ups and downs, and there were a lot of downs, but I think what makes it so important as a season for Borough is that it was the time when so many people were so emotionally invested in the club and it becomes a cipher of everything that's possible around the football club and that's why I think it still holds so much traction 